afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much for coming today. We are here to talk about four Beethoven sonatas, the three works of Opus 10 and Opus 13, the so-called famous pathetic sonata. Probably many of you have been here a few months ago when we talked about the first four sonatas, Opus 2, numbers 1, 2, and 3, and the E-flat major sonata, Opus 7. Uh, it is no coincidence that I'm trying to present the Beethoven sonatas in chronological order. Some people may agree with it, some people don't. I couldn't care less. Because I really believe in this um, presentation. Among the 32 Beethoven sonatas, there is really not one weak piece. And certainly, if you do a cycle of Mozart sonatas, or especially of the wonderful Schubert sonatas, then a chronological order is not entirely convincing or logical. Schubert's sonatas at the early stage especially are rather similar because he was fighting with the form, he was fighting with the idiom of the piano sonata and especially uh, the way he tries to solve the reprise, the recapitulation of the sonata form. Uh, it takes a while, so therefore this is no criticism because I don't think anybody loves Schubert more than I do, but with Schubert certainly and with Mozart, there is a, it makes sense to, to mix the early, the middle and the late sonatas. And you can certainly do that also with Beethoven, but to me it's much more interesting and fascinating to, to observe the development, the evolution of this great genius and one of the greatest pianists of all times and the greatest writers for the piano. Um, I started with the exposition of the C minor sonata opus 10 and as with the first piece of opus 2 which I remind you of, of course most of you know it very well, but you have this so-called Mannheimer rocket. It's a, a triad, an, an ascending triad. It's called Mannheimer because Mannheim, this uh, wonderful residential town in central Germany, had been the home of many important composers, contemporaries of Haydn, Mozart, and Beethoven, such as Karl Stamitz and Karl Dieters von Dietersdorf. And uh, this kind of ascending motive is their invention. And it is like a motive, a, a rocket, because it it's shoots up into the sky. So today we think of weapons of mass destruction, but this, this is not destructive. Um, now, 
we can also think of Mozart themes which are very similar to, to go towards the tonality of C minor because that's what Beethoven will be using. Here is the beginning of Mozart's great C minor sonata. <laughs> several other examples. Now, this F minor sonata that I first played of Opus 2, this is a simpler form of the Mannheimer rocket. Now, with the C minor, Opus 10, Beethoven starts with a very thick chord, seven voices. Look at how, how Mozart starts the C minor sonata. It's in unison. And anyway, Mozart's writing for the piano is always very transparent. Beethoven has a different approach to the piano. He writes for the fist, for two fists, really. I mean, this kind of... This is unimaginable in Mozart. Later, Schubert. Schubert paid homage to Beethoven here. Um, so we have a, a heavy chord and we have very dramatic dotted rhythms. He could write just as well. But with the dotted rhythm, it's more dramatic. And then comes a great contrast, the sighing motif, sospiro. Uh, the sonata form is, to me, one of mankind's greatest invention, certainly in music. It's a wonderful way to, to express drama, different characters, different sonorities, and, and contrasts. It's very, very dramatic, and I don't think that anything similar had been invented in music, and I, I hope that composers don't think today that the sonata form is finished. I mean, certainly people are still writing pieces called sonatas, uh, so there is still some hope. Um, these Opus 10 sonatas have been written almost immediately after the preceding ones. There, there is only a gap of one or two years in between. Um, what has Beethoven done between Opus 7 and or between Opus 2 and Opus 10, not very much. I, mean, I could really um, think the Opus, the Opus 5 cello sonatas, two wonderful masterpieces and very different. And certainly the string trios, Opus 9, three of those. And these are the towering masterpieces of, of this period. But the piano remains his instrument and his means of, of expression. He had been a wonderful pianist. He just arrived 
to Vienna from his native Bonn, and he wanted to make an impression in this Viennese saloons, in house concerts, etc. Uh, but whereas Opus 2, dedicated to his master, Joseph Haydn, it's not a very fancy dedication, only Joseph Haydn gewidmet. Uh, not very polite, actually, because uh, Beethoven very notily said that from Haydn he hadn't learned a thing. I mean, this is simply not true, and I don't think that he would have said that later. It's, it's quite obvious, even at a superficial look at Beethoven's works, we can all see Haydn's influence. Now, already Opus 7 is dedicated to Gräfin, to the Countess Babet Keglovich, and gradually most of these Beethoven sonatas are dedicated to patrons and uh, sort of supporters. Today we would call them sponsors of the art. Um, these were very important in Vienna and uh, Beethoven depended on them. Some of them were his pupils and they were great music lovers and, and great connoisseurs of music. Uh, let's not forget that amateur, amatore, it, it means somebody who actually loves music. And uh, that is not always the case with professionals. I wish professionals were also dilettanti and amatori della musica. So, the fact that Beethoven dedicates this to the patrons and he thinks very much pragmatically, practically, in terms of, of publishing. Uh, that's why you have three sonatas together. They are, it's, it's a very ugly word today, marketing, but even those days there was a certain sense of marketing. You had to sell these works and publishers, publishers were very practical people. Uh, they also asked Beethoven and Beethoven knew that uh, to cater for the connoisseurs, for the kenner und liebhabers, or the amateurs of music, you had to present works that are somewhat more accessible and a little easier to play. Um, Opus 10 is by no means easy to play, but Opus 2 is extraordinarily difficult. I mean, if you think of, especially of the second sonata, or the third one, are even today, they present extraordinary pianistic and technical difficulties. They are way beyond the uh, possibilities of most amateurs. Uh, so Beethoven, first of all, changes the structure of the sonata because for the first time he presents us with three movement works. Uh, all the Four sonatas preceding Opus 10 consisted of four movement sonatas. And they were, they were gigantic, enormous compositions. Uh, so a little more accessible to the amateurs, also easier 
to sell for the publisher, but no compromises. Beethoven never, never compromises, not musically. And to me, the evolution shows itself in the economy of composition. In, in the earlier works, we have a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of exaggeration, a lot of repetition. Uh, he cannot get enough of the materials. It's all very, very beautiful. So to me, it's not, not a minute, not a second too long. There is no such thing to me like music that is too long. It's also only certain people's patience is too short. <laughs> but understand what I mean. So there, is, there, is, there are ways of evolution. And to me, economy is one of the criterias of, of development in a, in a composer's output. So these sonatas are much more concentrated, much more um, connected in, in uh, thematic material. So let's play a little more. I don't want to talk too much because it's a little boring to you. So. silences. These are not fermatas, so they are not ad libitum. You cannot wait as long as you wish. You have to count time. And it's very important. Unfortunately, we don't have recordings by Beethoven. I wish we had them. But there are many witnesses some good witnesses and some false witnesses, like in the Bible. <laughs> and I mean, some of the good witnesses, like Ferdinand Ries, he describes often Beethoven's inimitable mastery of, of performance and, and improvisation. And he always played with a very strong sense of rhythm and of time, of tempo, but never mechanically. And he would vary, vary the tempo according to, to his impeccable taste, but not in a wayward, not in a, not in a manner that, that would be anarchistic. There has to be always order. And so like this moment, another sign of dramatic tension are intervals, not intervals in a concert when you go and have a drink, but you know, there's the distance between two notes, like yum. This is a tense, a decim. And this is very dramatic. 
then comes a new material. Uh, it's very important to, to follow Beethoven's text. He's, he's the first composer who is quite meticulous in his notation. We do possess the manuscripts to, to about 14 of the sonatas, if I'm not mistaken. Unfortunately, none of these. So we are left to first editions and contemporary copies. But even these are quite trustworthy, and Beethoven was very, very careful to control the, the prints and the, and the engravings, and so he, he was in constant touch with the publisher. So, for example, this note here is E-flat. It's marked for the piano, and it is like a horn call. Pum, pum. The horn can blow into the instrument and take back the tone. Um, already we can see that this wonderful pianist Beethoven seldom thinks in terms of the piano. He imitates the orchestra, different instruments of the orchestra, and he's already beyond his string trios, but he had not yet written his first string quartet. That will come in a few years' time with the wonderful six pieces of Opus 18, and the string quartet will become the other major genre of Beethoven's output, next to the piano sonata. But already in these piano sonatas, we have textures of string quartet. It could be played by a string quartet like this passage. It's a beautiful four-part writing. It happens to be on the piano, but I certainly don't think of, of the piano here. Uh, then it modulates, modulates. Mm. And uh, so we started in C minor. See, in, in classical music, in Viennese classical music, we have the main harmonic functions. We have the tonic, that's in C minor. We have the dominant, that's this one, and then subdominant, and back to the tonic. So, when we reach the, the second subject, it will be in the parallel key. Beethoven experiments always with different solutions of the sonata form. He, ha he's, he does not have one scheme. And this is what uh, later confused Schubert so much, who, who revered Beethoven. Beethoven was his god, and he, but he didn't want to imitate him, so he was looking for these solutions. Now, Beethoven has this unique ability that sometimes he gives us the second theme in the dominant key, sometimes he gives us in the median, sometimes in a, in a parallel key. And here... Uh, so this is the parallel 
key E flat major. This was the tonic. And now comes the second subject. Agitato. The whole whole movement is agitated. It's, uh, C minor has this tendency, especially with Beethoven, inner tension and very very dramatic. Um, he has three piano sonatas in C minor, so he loved this key and uh, other works in C minor: the Coriolan Overture, the Fifth Symphony, uh, the Third Piano Concerto. Uh, they all share something similar in character. So, what happens now? You see, again, this huge leap. It's like, it's very operatic. It's never mechanical, but, but it's, it has a rhetorical element. Again, these very heavy, thick chords. And the dotted rhythm from the main subject, you remember it? So again, the first and, and the third subjects are united rhythmically. And this is a closing subject, like, like an epilogue. Again, I, f I find it quite agitato because. of this chromatic line in the baritone. End of exposition. Then, repeat sign. I'm quite dogmatic on this, I'm sorry. I, I think many pianists feel that they can pick and choose between repeats. And with Beethoven, I mean, he's really so consistent, especially from now on, uh, from Opus 10 on. Uh, he repeats certain sections and omits others. And I think you really, as an interpreter, you must trust the composer. It's, it's not your choice. It's, you are too small for that. And you have to, anyway, these, these movements are extremely short. And you owe it to the composer because he has a perfect sense of balance. So, like in this movement, the exposition is repeated and then development section and recapitulation are not repeated. So, therefore, you have the equilibrium of, of the two halves. Now, if you don't repeat the first half, then suddenly there is no balance. And that's obviously not what Beethoven wanted. So, if 
if a performer wants to do it differently, then he or she should write his or her sonata, not this one. Um, so we finished the exposition. Then comes a huge exclamation mark, so back to the major tonic. But this is a big shock. comes something very beautiful for the first time in the subdominant F minor a new theme this is completely new material we have never heard it before and it will never return. Again, it's extremely important to follow Beethoven's dynamics and phrasing and where, where he puts a crescendo and a diminuendo and when there is no crescendo. And a lot of performance, I'm, I'm really not a schoolmaster here, but people don't, don't follow this. They approximately play what is there. Because here, um, no crescendo, crescendo, diminuendo, now big crescendo, diminuendo, and no crescendo. So it's, it's very intricate. Two, two phrases that are symmetrical, but they are different because of, because of the dynamics, and the, the crescendo and the diminuendo are completely different. And then comes we have reached D flat major, Neapolitan tonality. It's if you go up a minor second from the main tonality, because it's just C minor. So you see, it's it's very strange. this strangeness, so he writes pianissimo, and it is sort of senza colore, without color. It's very distant. Uh, now, and now he's looking for, for the exit, and he always finds the exit, that's the good thing. Uh, to C minor, but, but it's not the final arrival. <laughs> and here we are. It, it, we feel that we are at the threshold of coming home, the, the dominant. And he's uh, repeating this dominant. It's a prolongation of dominant. <laughs> Secco, very dry, 
and softer and softer and softer. And this is the return. And there is just no, no pardon here. Every, everybody knows. This is, this is a language. Music is a language that must be spoken by somebody to a community with whom he has a common language. And this was the case in Vienna at the end of the 18th century. And that's the problem today. We have no language. It's Babylon. Everybody speaks something, but well, I mean, when I hear a contemporary piece today, sometimes I like it, sometimes I don't like it, but I have no idea that, that I have come home. Because, like, I love this feeling of here we are. Yes, etc. So I don't want to explain now every note and every measure. Uh, then comes the recapitulation, and then after the. say no very firmly. It's not a yes, but it's a no, no. Second movement it couldn't be more different, adagio molto. Again, these days composers were very interested in, in tempi and often composer would just write adagio, so or allegro, or allegretto, this is what we call tempo ordinario. Ordinary tempo, if a musician saw on the paper two, four time adagio, then you associated it with, with a certain tempo. This is beautifully uh, described by Charles Rosen in his latest book on Beethoven. That, uh, adagio in, in this time is, let's say, in metronome marks, uh, quarter equals 72, let's say. But if a composer wanted something particular, not an ordinary tempo, then he writes something else. So he says, adagio molto. So this is an extreme, extremely slow movement, extremely slow by Beethovenian terms, so not by Wagnerian terms or not by Brucknerian terms. like a string quartet texture, but it's very, very solemn. It has a great calmness and great tranquility. After 
these first eight bars comes the variation of the same theme with semi-quaver accompaniment was the main theme of the second movement. And now comes something new, something quite rhetorical. Uh, again, Beethoven writes, here, main notes and ornamental notes. So, so you, again, we have a huge leap, and he fills it out with this uh, little ornamental notes. And the answer in piano. Again, the first is an exclamation in fortissimo. So again, you have enormous dynamic contrasts. Uh, Edwin Fischer, the great Swiss pianist and Beethoven player, thought of Bach's Six Partita when, when he mentions this movement. Mm, I can see a similarity rhythmically, no other way, because Bach goes... <laughs> Of, of the rhythmic similarity. And now the bass takes over. Again, we, we reached the dominant of the dominant. So this slow movement is in sonata form. That's again a new element. Sonata form without the development section. And now we come to the second subject, which starts here. trouble to write out the little 64th and 128th notes with, with five or six stems. So uh, he was not a lazy man. Uh, mm, mm. Now it gets very rhetorical. Um,
on today's pianos, we have very short strings in the upper register. So Beethoven always complained in his, that, that the piano doesn't sing enough. He wanted it to, to sing more and to sustain more. So you know, it's, it can never be long enough. We have to think of singers. Then come just the dominant sevens. Capitulation, as I said, this is a sonata form without a development section. The only difference is then that the second and the third subjects we hear in the tonic key as opposed to the dominant. Uh, at the end of this, there is still a very beautiful coda, and in that we can admire Beethoven's art of variation. Improvisation. He was a great, great improviser, and next to Haydn, his works in variation forms are, are unsurpassable. So here. Are, are piano, but there is a generosity and, and a warmth that radiates from, from Beethoven's personality, and it has to come through in the, in the sound, and uh, there is a, a fullness of, of a Beethoven piano, which is very different from a, from a Mozart or from a Haydn piano. Uh, then he finishes this movement in pianissimo, in the lowest register. This is prestissimo, extreme. Again, no tempo ordinario, not, no allegro and no presto, but extremely fast. Uh, already 
you can see in, in Opus 10 that Beethoven works psychologically. The movements are not together in an arbitrary manner. You couldn't just put here an, any other movement. And they, they have to grow out of one another. So to me, it's very important that a, a Beethoven sonata really starts with the first note of the first movement and finishes with the last note of the last movement. So if a performer after the second movement does this and then, and then takes a handkerchief and uh, takes the sweat away and everybody starts to cough, I mean, that's the worst thing you can do because you lose the tension, you, you ruin Beethoven's sense of, of continuity. Um, so prestissimo, pianissimo start and, and, and in unison, so very mysterious, very spooky. Uh, let's think of some other Beethoven pieces like one number three and all these start pianissimo piano and 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 in unison so they have something in common but some some Beethoven pieces start in unison and fortissimo also in C minor for example and that will come later in this movement it's very interesting I think it's the first appearance of of this fate motive occurs in this movement. So let's play a little more. Contrast again. Second subject. So you have this very virtuoso passage. Again, always sforzando on the second beat, not to be forgotten. And, uh, change of tonality, change of character. Suddenly we have a, a Gassenhauer. Gassen, however, is a, is a Viennese street song. Somebody that, any, like the, like the greengrocer, can whistle it. And it's, it's very witty. Um, again, in a, in a dramatic, almost tragic sonata, you have suddenly comical elements.
incredibly funny because like a correction. And sort of evaporates in nothing. And then a sforzando, end of the exposition, but within piano. Repeat. Let's remember it. I hope I won't forget. <laughs> and then comes, this is, this is a finale in sonata form with a development, but the development section is extremely short. I will play it, so. This is the whole development section, just a couple of bars. Recapitulation. And this is, again, it's a language, it's a, two, two little questions, and then a the, the big question. Question mark. Then, uh, and now comes an answer. Yes. So, sonata form, second and third subjects, again in the tonic key, um, and then comes a coda. This is this is very important because he finishes this sonata rather unconventionally. Uh, <laughs> long as you wish and then again this is dominant of D flat major again we have this Napolitan key and now comes the second subject in the Napolitan key under the tempo sempre ritardando slower adagio he writes comes this is incredible because you can already hear the seeds of the tempest sonata here nicht it will be many years later <laughs> so anyway and back to the tempo <laughs> the two themes we had you know and uh, the 
disappears without, without retardando, and it is anything but spectacular, nothing spectacular about this. Very theatrical, but it's against expectations, and, and this is really admirable with Beethoven, that very often with his piano sonatas, he's, he's not writing for effect. And, and indeed, whenever I play this sonata, it never has any success. <laughs> but, and nor does the Opus 10 number three, which is the most wonderful sonata, because people like to applaud when it's loud. <laughs> well, not you, probably. <laughs> uh, but, so it's, you couldn't finish more unconventionally and, and more uh, modestly. <laughs>